Welcome to the Dave Llewellyn Podcast. Today, sports stories. And my guest is Dave Lewis, the former Red Wings player, assistant coach, head coach, a man who's played over 1,000 regular season games in the National Hockey League. We'll hear from Dave some of the stories, more about his background and life in hockey. But first, just a word about what we're attempting to do here with this podcast. Does the world need another podcast? <laughs> That's debatable, of course, but here we are, and it's part of my next chapter. After 35 years as an anchor, sports anchor, reporter at WXYZ in Detroit, an effort to stay engaged uh, and involved in the community. And I thought it'd be an awful lot of fun to talk with people that I've gotten to know in the business over the years that I've covered, that I've met, that I've had interactions with, and that includes Dave Lewis here today. It's the Dave Llewellyn Podcast. At the moment, that's a working title. The name could change, may very well change, but here we are today and we'll see where things go from here. But for now, let's introduce our special guest today, Dave Lewis. He is a friend. He's a guy I covered at the end of his playing career throughout his time as an assistant coach and then head coach with the Detroit Red Wings and a relationship that has continued beyond his coaching days as well. Welcome, and uh, thank you for being part of this inaugural podcast. No problem, Dave. I wish you all the best, and I'm certainly sure it'll be a success. Well, we'll see. Time yeah. will tell about that. Yep. Your life in hockey certainly has been a success, and, and let's talk about that. Um, 1,000 games in the yep. NHL. I looked that up uh, this morning, in fact. Only 382 players in NHL history right. have played over uh, 1,000 regular season games. That's pretty select company. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, um, people asked me what was the most exciting part of it. And I guess my first game and my thousandth game. And then in between, it was like a, a joyride. So um, interesting story. When I played my thousandth game, it was at Joe Lewis Arena. And I wore number 52 when I came to Detroit. Throughout my whole career, I would wear number 25. I wore number 25 in New York, number 25 in LA, number 25 in New Jersey. But when I came to Detroit, John O'Grodnick wore number 25. So somewhere through that season, that my first season here, he got traded to New York. So I came up with this idea and had to get permission from the league, from the NHL, that I would start the game with number 52, and I ended the game wearing number 25. And I don't know if that's ever been done before, but uh, I did it, and uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, my children were on the ice, my wife, and uh, it was an exciting time, and we had um, an emotional evening. Within the game? Within the game, yeah, between periods, I changed the jersey. And I don't know if anybody else in the building knew, but uh, I did. So I, I ended my career, or I ended, I played a thousandth game with the number that I had used my whole career. Did you uh, save that jersey? Is that jersey in the Hockey uh, Hall of Fame? Uh, no, not, yeah, it's in the Dave Lewis Hall of Fame, yeah. <laughs> it's in my basement, um, yeah, hanging up. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, a nice memory. Good keepsake. And we got, I have a picture of me laying on the ice, and whoever took the picture put a thousand pucks around my head, so... It was for me. It was quite a big to do. Well, for anybody, by yeah. by uh, 
reference to the fact that there's only 382 players who ever achieved that. Yeah, yeah. All right, growing up in in Saskatchewan, um, playing hockey as a as a as a young boy, and then progressing. I mean, you can't ever imagine number one that uh, maybe that the dream of the NHL comes true, but right. but imagining yourself playing 1,000 games in the NHL. Yeah, no, when you're growing up, uh, I grew up in a small town like a lot of kids out west, Western Canada or even across Canada yeah. and the U.S. now too, but, um, you know, playing street hockey, playing hockey on outdoor arena, um, having, I remember uh, growing up, there was uh, cereal boxes that would have pictures of NHL players on the back of them. So I made my mother buy this particular cereal. I cut the pictures out and pasted them on my wall and um, just just played a lot of hockey because back then, one TV channel, um, not much to do in the middle of winter in Saskatchewan, but uh, skate and play hockey. So I uh, had some good coaches, good tutoring, and had a lot of fun doing it. This is Kindersley. Saskatchewan. Kindersley, Saskatchewan. And Bob Bourne, who uh, four-time Stanley Cup winner with the New York Islanders, we played together um, since we were 12 years old. We actually won the provincial championship at age of 13. And uh, I showed people the picture. And they said, well, of course you won. You had two guys that played in the NHL. So uh, a lot of great memories. Um, just uh, that's what we did. I mean, and there was nothing else to do. So we were fortunate enough and blessed enough, I guess, to get talent and some coaching and guidance and continue on on our career. We played together in... Saskatoon with the Blades, and then we played together in the New York Islanders. So Saskatoon, that's Western Hockey League, that's junior hockey, that's yep. the top level of, of junior hockey uh, in Canada and some U.S. cities now as well in, uh, in, in junior hockey. Uh, two seasons with the Saskatoon Blades, but were you able to live at home while you did that? Were you with a billet family? And no. tell me about that. My mother, I had, I, somebody had requested me to play somewhere, I think Thunder Bay or something. Uh, my mother wouldn't let me leave home till I graduated high school. So I had graduated high school. And uh, back then you were a little older before you got drafted. And so I was 18, moved to Saskatoon and had to live with a billet. And the person I billeted with was Pat Price, who ended up being the number one pick overall in the WHA, also drafted by the NHL. So we lived together for a couple of years. And um, I guess my second year, I realized that there might be a chance to be drafted. Wasn't really sure. We had a pretty good team. We had a good coach and Jack McLeod, who coached Canadian national team at one time. And um, as things happened, I uh, got drafted by the New York Islanders in the NHL and the Edmonton Oilers of the uh, World Hockey League. And my dream was to play in the NHL, and Edmonton seemed awfully close to home, which I didn't <laughs> want to be. So uh, ended up uh, being drafted by the Islanders. 1973, yep. third round, 33rd yep. overall. Um, what was the draft like then? Because now it's a it's a big show and all the top players are in the stands waiting for their name to yep. be called yep. and you go on stage with the team that drafted you and you get your picture taken with the jersey and the, the whole yep. group of executives it wasn't that way in 1973 wasn't, wasn't quite like that in Saskatoon which uh that's where the team was a, a bigger city second or it's the biggest city in Saskatchewan um I went to the local newspaper and had to go in their offices and the ticker tape or whatever they call it, yeah. 
Um, that's how I found out that I was drafted. Like you, you say, the first pick overall was Dennis Potts and New York Islanders, and I knew that they didn't. I didn't know where I was going to be drafted, but or by who, and then it kept going through the first round, no, and then through the second round, no, and then I was the first pick in the third round. So I teased Danny Potvin, who is you know Hall of Famer. I said, "You and I are both first picks." <laughs> and he, we both laugh about that. He was the first pick overall. I was the first pick in the third round. Well, and tell me about Potvin because uh, obviously the the career he had, yeah. but the beginnings yeah. the two of you had. Yeah, fabulous player. Obviously a Hall of Fame. Played it. Every level, uh, Team Canada, Olympics, whatever. Uh, um, just a competitor, strong, focused, uh, driven player, and uh, wouldn't back down, fearless. He is, um, you know, one of those guys that you have a chance to build a franchise around. And then the the good job that, uh, you know, Bill Torrey did and uh, Jimmy D was there to, you know, to as a scout at that time, he was the one that drafted me. And it just, it was the start of something really good. And we, we started to develop good. We had some good mentorship as young players with some good, uh, Burt Marshall was my partner. There's some guys that most people don't know who they are, um, but came along and uh, we learned together, learned how to play the game the correct way with a great coach under Al Arbor. And Denny was uh, the first, um, you know, one of the first stepping stones along with a guy named Billy Harris, who was their first pick overall um, in the Islanders franchise history. Dave Lewis joining us on the Dave Lou Allen podcast. Uh, 1,000 games in the uh, NHL as a player, coach as well, head coach with the Detroit Red Wings, Boston Bruins, coached internationally as well, which we will get into on, on this podcast. Um, Back to the Islanders, though, 1972 was the expansion year. You right. mentioned Billy Harris, the number yep. one pick overall. I saw the Islanders in that first season oh, wow. as a kid at Olympia against the Red Wings. Uh, the name I remember most from that team was Ed Westfall because right. he had a name yet came in the expansion draft to the Islanders. And so he and Billy Harris kind of were the, the first two guys that right. – I paid attention to anyway as a young hockey fan. Right. Eddie Westfall came from the Boston Bruins, and he was their first captain, the Islanders' first captain. And um, he, he brought a lot of credibility to, to the franchise, to a young franchise. And I know that he mentored Billy Harris. He mentored a bunch of the young guys. And he, uh, to this day, they call him captain, you know, just like 18, captain, whatever. And uh, he, he uh, is still active with the Islanders in, uh, like, ambassador capacity does a lot of stuff with them and he was our captain for a long time and uh you know it was very a positive influence on us only 12 wins in that first season yeah that's probably why i made the team <laughs> well 16 the next year in your first season yeah. you mentioned earlier on about uh remembering your first game and that thousandth game yep. tell me about that first game as a rookie it, in the nhl and you never played a single game in the, the minor minors, leagues. No. You went from junior hockey right to the Islanders. Yeah, so I remember uh, in the training room, uh, a player named Craig Cameron had a had a career in the NHL, had his legs crossed in his underwear, smoking a cigarette, had a <laughs> cup of coffee, and I'm a nervous wreck getting ready for me. He said, don't worry about a thing, you'll be fine. So that sort of made me calm down a bit and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, got on, you know, started the game and finished the game. And I was so happy, so proud to play just one NHL game because growing up, it's any kid's dream uh, to play that one game. And th that was uh, 
uh, such a special moment for me uh, to play that game. And, uh, you know, it started... Uh, it started a good career for me. Started a life in in hockey. Yeah, in hockey. In, yeah, in the NHL. Um, so that first year was, uh, you know, maybe baptism under fire, if you will. The team from that point on, though, got steadily better. Y yeah, we we started developing. I'll back up a little bit. So uh, my wife will be our 49th wedding anniversary coming up uh, really soon. She came after training camp to Long Island, flew from Saskatoon to Toronto, Toronto to New York. And as it turned out, it, we had our last exhibition game in Boston on that Saturday night. And back then you flew commercial. So we had to wait till Sunday morning, flew commercial to Long Island, landed at LaGuardia, got on the team bus, went to the Nassau Coliseum, got my car, rushed back to LaGuardia to pick my girlfriend up at the time and we got married uh, the next year but um, she had a dog traveling with her because she was going to live with me in Long Island and so I, dra I drive back to LaGuardia and I ask one of the bellhops up front or whatever you call them the sky caps um, you know where the flight from uh, Toronto is wh where what gate it's coming in he looked at me really strange and he said I would think that the flight from Toronto was going to land at JFK. Oh. And I go, what is JFK? I had no idea there was two airports in Long, or in Long Island at the time. So needless to say, no cell phone. I had to figure out how to get from LaGuardia to JFK. I was about two and a half hours late. She was mad. She, she, people wouldn't help her with the dog. That wasn't the way to start off a you know, relationship in New York, but it turned out all right. So, yeah, I'll say. Yeah, so that, that first year we had, you know, peaks and valleys. And you had, it's so different in junior hockey. You had to learn how to deal with the travel, the game itself, the players, the skill, the strength, the speed, how to deal with the media, how to deal with, you know, the coach and how he reacts to each individual player. So. It was a big learning curve for a lot of us. And there was a lot of young guys on the team, but Al did a great job in that. And we had some good mentors, like I said, Eddie Westwell, Burt Marshall, Billy McMillan. He just passed away. Um, but it, it, it helped us grow individually and collectively as, as a team. And it didn't take long. You made the playoffs five straight years. Yep. Four of those five years, you went to the third round. Yeah. I mean, you knew something special was happening there. Yeah. It was it was starting to uh, fall together with some, you know, other great draft picks, Clark Gillies, Mike Bossy, Brian Troche, Bob Bourne ended up coming there, uh, and then some key pickups, uh, Billy Smith and yeah. Chico Resch. And so it was, if you wanted to model a franchise, that would be a, a good one to study and, and to follow. I, you know, I, I sort of in my mind remember Al Arbor saying, you know, you got to have three lines, two scoring lines, a checking line, and a specialty line, and then you got to have an anchor on the fence, like a Dennis Potvin, a.k.a. a little bit like a Nick Lidstrom, right. and then obviously, you know, goaltending, Billy Smith, a Hall of Fame goaltender, but uh, a lot of good, ha good things happening, and I guess I remember um, going through that development phase and you felt the pressure as you continued on year four, year five, year six, and there was, ex you know, external pressure from the media and the fans that, uh, you know, things better start coming together. And it, as it turned out, it did. And then March 10th, 1980 happened. Yep, yep. And uh, as this team was moving toward the ultimate goal – 
you were traded yep. at the trading deadline yep. with Billy Harris. That had to be a devastating moment. It was devastating for me. Uh, uh, Brenda, my wife, was pregnant, and uh, we had to get up and leave. Uh, I found out we were watching Johnny Carson, and there was rumors in the locker room that there was going to be a trade um, for uh, a forward, and we weren't sure who, but we thought it was going to be somewhere like Edmonton. That was sort of the gut feel of some of the players. But as it turned out, I got a call just after 1 o'clock in the morning, I believe it was, from Bill Torrey that I had been traded to Los Angeles along with Billy Harris. And that you have to come and get your equipment and then head out there the next day. Um, so, of course, it was a sleepless night. There were some tears, and uh, I'll never forget flying over Manhattan, leaving Long Island, and it's just sort of like you're, you're leaving where you grew up. And yeah. I, I grew up as a player in Long Island and uh, ended up flying out to L.A., and Butch Goring came, and he, he was a centerman behind Brian Troche, uh, offensive guy, and then uh, Wayne Merrick and Lorne Henning were the centermen. That, that was the I guess the last piece of the puzzle for the Islanders and to add even to that I, I was expendable because a young player named Kenny Morrow coming off the 1980 Olympics US hockey team uh, Michigan kid that um, he was they felt he was good enough to play and he certainly was and so the rest is history they won four in a row um, once I got traded but the good thing was that I get the phone call after they won in the locker room and they just wanted – this is from the players. They yeah. just wanted me to be part of their success because the growing pains of all those years. Yeah. So it was nice. Well, sorry that you missed out on that, <laughs> but uh, you have your name on the Stanley Cup three times yeah, yeah. Uh, from your involvement with the Red Wings, which yeah. we will uh, get into. Dave Lewis joining me on the Dave Llewellyn podcast uh, today, talking about his life in hockey, some of the stories as well. I've told you before during lunches and the whatnot, as I've heard many of these stories, that you need to write a book. <laughs> you have so many stories. I'll tell you another Islander story. Right. So the one year um, we are in the playoffs, we are down three games to none to Pittsburgh Penguins, and that was the year that we had knocked the Islanders or the Rangers off. So one, two, and three, we knocked the Rangers off. We start the next series against Pittsburgh, and we're down three games to none. And every year in playoff time, there's a circus at Madison Square Garden. And one of the, one of the players' buddies, the lawyer, actually two lawyers and a restaurateur, um, got this idea that we needed something to break the hex of down three games to none because coming back from a three-game series at that point, only one team had done it since 1942. Um, somebody went to Madison Square Garden, got some gunny sacks, and filled it full of elephant dung. Brought it to the trainers and put it in the Nassau Coliseum for game four. We're down three games to none. Sure enough, we win that game and have to fly to Pittsburgh. So what do you think the trainers had to do? They had to package that up and bring it on the airplane. Put it in the locker room. So we go to Pittsburgh, we win that game, we come back, we win that game, game seven in, Nass er, in Pittsburgh. We won the game one nothing with Eddie Westfall scoring the goal. So we advanced to play Philadelphia Flyers. We're down three games to none. Where do you think happens? Yeah. The elephant dung comes back. Unfortunately, 
Uh, Kate Smith would sing the national anthem, so Eddie Westfall presented her game seven with a bouquet of a dozen roses, thinking that might break the hex with the dung, but they were just too good. They went and they went on to win the Stanley Cup that year. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the poor trainers had to drag this stuff around for I don't know three weeks, I guess. And you guys had to be. We had them. Yeah, we had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But All right, so. The trade from the Islanders to the L.A. Kings, you were there three years, and then it was yep. on to New Jersey. And then yep. finally you ended your playing career in Detroit with the Red Wings, signed as a, as a free agent. Yep. Uh, what, at that point, as you reflect back, what were your expectations? So this was your, what, going to be your 15th, 15th season, 14th um, season? I, I played 15 total, so it would have been my 13th season coming here, for yeah. 14, 14th season. And, of course, I knew Jimmy D, Jimmy DeVolano. He drafted me, and he was the general manager at the time here in Detroit. Mike Illich was the owner, um, and Jimmy D was his first GM. And um, Jimmy knew me. He he tried to get me uh, from the – from the Kings, I remember him talking to me about that, and then from the Devils, and it didn't happen. So I came as an unrestricted free agent for a whopping signing bonus of $25,000. In today's market, that's yeah. not very much. But um, came here, and he wanted me to be, and my wife, to sort of be like mentors, like a mentorship for the young players, for the young wives, and sort of take some of that, osmosis out of right. New York situation, the Islanders, and bring it into Detroit um, along with some other veteran players. And it was a young team still at that point. Steve yep. Eiserman, Probert, yep. Koser, Koser. Yep. A lot of young uh, guys. Greg Steffen, you know, guys yep. that, you know, in some cases. Peter uh, Klima, right. Adam Oates, yeah. Right. So right. That, that, that had trouble uh, just getting to practice on time, yep. let alone, yep. you know, figuring out how to win so, NHL games. So he wanted us to – wanted me to establish or help establish a certain culture that the Islanders had. Um, and that was, you know, talking to, working with young players, uh, you know, the Steve Eisenmans, uh, me being a former captain in Los Angeles. Um, Stevie, you know, eventually he was, was the captain. Wow. And what do you do as a captain? As a young player, you don't always know. You know, you don't know what's the right thing. You don't know if you're going to step on some toes or – and, and so that was part of um, my responsibility besides being just a player, you know. Um, so we, we accepted that. We, my wife had a Halloween party, and uh, I think Harold Schnepp threw a meatball on the white carpet, and one of my dogs ate it. My wife wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, we, uh, we had, a, you know, we had a good run a yeah. couple of years in a row. Um, with Gilbert Delorme and Lee Norwood and oh, yeah. guys that whack and uh, hack, whack and hack yeah. yeah, back then, and uh, <laughs> you know, a young Steve Eisman, and like you said, Proby and Joey and Peter Klima and Adam Oates and uh, Tim Higgins was another yeah. guy that uh, came to came to work every day, and it was a loosey goosey locker room and just and a, made it to uh, the conference finals yeah, in back to back yeah. seasons against Gretzky and the Oilers. Yeah, yeah, with uh, Jacques Demers as our coach yeah. and. Uh, he was he was probably good for that team because it was a, just a collection of guys and somehow he molded it into yeah. be a, be a motivated group and um, had that success that uh, helped establish some of these young players anyway. Eventually uh, retired. Yep. Um, six games in, I think, yep. to yep. Uh, the eighty seven eighty eight season. Yeah. The body had just sort of shut down and uh, 
had talked with Jacques Demers and talked with Jimmy D and uh, they sort of suggested that I, you know, retire and then could stay with the team and help do some of the things that, you know, it happened the year before and uh, work, work with the young guys, don't necessarily travel with the team, but be like a pseudo coach. Um, come to the game, sit in the press box, and you know, come to some practices, and so that sort of got got my foot out of my playing career and a foot into the coaching career. So I have to thank both of them for that opportunity. Did you think at some point you would want to coach? You know, I didn't really know. I, you know, it's funny in the hockey world, in the sports world, you sort of live day to day. Like you, you get ready for the game, you play the game, then you got to get rid of that game, then you got to get ready for practice or ready for travel. And I sort of, I enjoyed mentoring players. I studied the game, so I enjoyed that. So that year sort of helped me. Um, I remember in New Jersey, I, I took a real estate license when I played for the Devils. Didn't really want to do that. And then I, I went to Oakland Community College here after I retired for, you know, some classes, English and, you know, political science and stuff like that. But I, I you know, as it turned out, mm, it was the right fit, and I, I, I got the right, I get the right vibes doing it, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it, and that was just just something that happened. So I was lucky. Talking hockey with uh, Dave Lewis, uh, the former Red Wings player, assistant coach, and head coach. Uh, among his uh, his resume in this life in hockey, and we're talking about that and some of the stories that go along with it. Um, so eventually you become a full-fledged assistant, yep. though, under Demers, and then Brian Murray, and then ultimately Scotty Bowman Scotty as Bowman. well, yep. where the Wings got back to where the franchise longed to be, yep. Stanley Cup champions, three times in the six years that, right. Uh, right, that you were involved uh, with the team as, a, as an assistant or associate yep. coach. Yep. Yep. Um, so the first time I met Scotty, uh, or not the first time I met Scotty, but the first time on the ice with Scotty was in Traverse City. We had a uh, training camp up there, as they still do today. And I'll never forget this. All the coaches are all around. Barry Smith, uh, the other assistant, and I think it might have been Glenn Murkowski who was coaching the American Hockey League team at the time. Coaches and GM, we all had a big meeting prior to the first practice. And you're taking notes, and here are the drills, and, and here's what – you know, drill one, and here's what we're going to accomplish. So up there, they have two sheets of ice. And I was going to go on the ice with Scotty, and Barry Smith and Glenn Murkowski were going on the ice uh, on the other side with the other. So we had, you know, the identical practices. And I step on the ice, and as you do, you just skate around slowly, and how the players just tap them or whatever. And so Scotty comes up to me, and he says, um, Dave, what's, uh, what's the first drill? Now, in the back of my mind, I'm going – does he not know the first drill, or has he just tested me to see if I know the first drill? So sure enough, he does. we do the first drill, and he comes by, okay, uh, what's the second drill? So this went on for an hour and 15 minutes through the whole practice. And to this day, I don't know if he didn't remember what or didn't pay attention to the meeting we had, or if uh, he just wanted me to make sure that I took care of things and he was there. So that was uh, the first on-ice experience with Scotty. All right, so there were... Many experiences, many stories that yeah. could be told. Yeah. Um, maybe one or two that uh, really help uh, further kind of tell the tale the of relationships? life um, with Scotty. Yeah. Well, I've told you this story before, but um, and I don't remember what year it was, and we were in a bit of a slump. Like, we maybe lost one or two games. Like, we had a pretty good team. Yeah, that was a slump. And, and uh, 
And so Barry Smith and I, after a game, would always get to Joe Lewis Arena early to break down the video, watch, prepare. I don't, like some days we had video, some days we didn't. Maybe we did power play or whatever. So there's, you know, it, there's lots to do. And back then it was done on real tape, like tape, not like computer now. Yeah. But um, so we got in and, and Barry's got a notepad and I got a notepad. We're watching <laughs> the game. And all of a sudden, Barry's starting to write down. He's looking at number 14, and it was not back-checking. And number 14, and number 14 was Brendan Shannon, one of our captains. Yeah. So after, Barry's got a whole list of clips. And, and Scotty comes in an hour later and sits down, and, and uh, he's grumpy because we had lost the night before. And Barry says, I got something to show you, Scotty. So Barry brings these clips out. And look, he's not doing this, and he's not hitting, and he's... And then Scotty's starting to get wound up. He's getting emotional. And he says, ha, ha, no wonder we can't win any of these games. He's one of our captains. He's not doing the things we ask him. That's not right. And so now Scotty's all wound up. And he says, Barry, get the trainer and tell Shani to get in here. Now, poor Shani's in his underwear. His hair's disheveled. He's got a cup of coffee. He just got to the rink and practices an hour out yet. And he knocks on the door and he says, um, yeah, here you guys want to see me. So Scotty looks at Shani. He looks at Barry. And he looks at Shani, and he says to, to Barry, not looking at Barry, he says, Barry, tell him what you're saying about him. And he turns his back and walks over to the corner of the room with his cup of coffee. So now I'm biting my lip like, oh, my God, what's Barry going to say now? He's like, he thought Scotty was going to present whatever Scotty wanted to present. Shani's a captain. Yeah. Barry's got to watch what he says to him. And yet he's got to watch what he says because Scotty's right there. So he really boxed Barry in and... Uh, as it turned out, it wasn't quite as bad as, as it seemed as, like it was going to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's just one of those many stories. that. Uh, so in Montreal, and I've read a lot about Scotty and his, the relationship yep. with the players that, you know, you hated them most of the time yep. until you celebrated the Stanley Cup, which they did a lot in, in Montreal, Montreal right, in, those, yep. in those years. But, you know, working with him and having to kind of be a conduit between the players mm -hmm. and the head coach, yep. I mean – you know that relationship in Detroit yeah. with the players um, mixed you, you, as well yeah oh yeah you had to I was like the filter you know there would be a message from this way yeah. and you have to figure out what message is going to go that way it, it wouldn't always be verbatim and but you had to be the filter that's what I felt, or firemen I call. There's little fires you have to put out, but you're filtering it. You want the players to get the message, but you want to make sure that, that, that the head coach is appeased, and you want to make sure the players understand and are appeased. And so there was a lot of that for nine years uh, doing that. Um, and there's another, <laughs> another Scotty story that we needed a defenseman in, in this particular game. And Glens Falls, New York, Adirond in Adirondack was the farm team. Aaron Ward was the player. Aaron Ward got called up on a Tuesday morning, let's say, for the morning skate. So he had to get up at the crack of dawn, get, uh, get on the airplane with his own luggage, fly to uh, Detroit, get picked up and brought to Joe Lewis Arena by the time 10.30 in the morning when we had our morning skate. So now Aaron gets in, he's all excited, gets his gear on, gets out on the ice, does practice. Scotty's watching him, yells at him a couple times. Aaron off the ice. Uh, Scotty called, I think might have been Kenny at the time or Jimmy D. I don't really remember who was in charge of the team. Scotty called him. He says, he's no good. I don't want him. Send him back. <laughs> 
So I had to go tell Aaron that he's not playing in tonight's game. He's got to go back to, to Glens Falls. So just one of those why, I don't know why, but he just didn't like what he saw in the morning skate. And, it was uh, Scotty. Yeah, that's Scotty, yeah. Well, and I told you uh, this story about, uh, you know, when I was uh, at Channel 7, we'd, you know, be on the bench after practice. You guys would leave the ice, yep. and uh, we'd grab a player or two for quick little interviews. And I remember once uh, grabbing Iserman, and we're getting ready to do an interview. Everybody else was off the ice and in the locker room, one of the trainers or somebody came out and said to Steve, hey, Scotty's, Scotty's called a meeting. You know, you got to go. And, and Steve, at that time, it was kind of like, you know, okay. screw him, basically. Yeah. It, let's do the interview. So we did. And that was the last time that that ever happened because Scotty then no longer allowed interviews on the bench, the bench, right. Cameras at, on the bench. after practice. So yep. we were up in the stands. Yep. And this was kind of the beginning of that Scotty Iserman tension that ultimately led to the trade rumors that he yep. was going to be traded to Ottawa. Yep. Yep. And then the other thing I specifically remember about that was uh, the next season after all of that and the introduction on opening night of the players and the ovation that Iserman right. got yep. that went on and on and yep. on and on. In other words, saying, hey, Scotty, you know, yeah. Leave this alone. Right, right. Yeah. But after that, their relationship, obviously, Scotty imposed his will, and, and Steve Eisenman, for as great a player as he was, did change his game. He did change his game, yeah. Stevie, I think when you're a young player and at his level, the skill, He scored 60 goals. Yeah. Um, in, in your mind, uh, being an offensive player, getting recognized, getting to a, a, you know, an all-star game or whatever, you establish your career. And he had the ability to do that. The one area that Stevie really worked on and became a master at is his defensive game. Um, winning key defensive yeah. faceoffs, killing key penalties, blocking shots, doing the things that when he was younger, he didn't do. And I think Scotty had a real influence on him doing that. And Scotty, the one thing with Scotty, he knew what it took to win. And um, he knew what kind of player he wanted. And he knew that, I'm certainly sure we didn't really talk about it a lot. Um, but he saw Stevie as the highly offensive player, but he wanted him to be uh, a complete player. And I think as it turned out, when I say complete player, a complete player at a high level at both ends of the puck, yeah. um, you know, offense and defense. And it, it worked out for, for all of us uh, that, that were around and that were involved with that, that, uh, you know, Stevie became the Steve Eisenman that uh, yeah. player or, you know, fans and players saw every day in those runs. Yeah, and now he's the one making yeah. decisions, yeah. Uh, yeah. directing the fortunes of the franchise. We could talk all day, of course, and, and I appreciate this opportunity on this inaugural podcast that, uh, that Dave Lewis is here to tell some of those stories about, uh, about your life in hockey. Um, you succeeded Scotty Bowman as head mm -hmm. coach of the Detroit Red Wings after the Stanley Cup win in, in 2002. You know, it's like following Johnny Carson or anybody else. Yeah. You're not supposed to do that. <coughs> yeah. But by the same token, uh, it was the opportunity to be a head coach yeah. in the NHL. So, of course, you're going to take that job. And, by the way, you got a team that had just won the Stanley yeah. Cup. Yeah. Let me back up just a little bit. 2002, sure. we had signed Dominic Hasek. Yeah. Uh, Luke Robitaille, Brett Hall came in. And we lose game one and game two to Vancouver. 
um, of the first series in Joe Lewis Arena. Now we fly to Vancouver and we had an afternoon practice and all the coaches, the managers, scouts were in one room two and a half hours before practice. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What We gotta do something to change the mood, to change whatever. So everybody had a suggestion. So now um, the players start filtering into the locker room for getting ready for practice. Scotty gets up, walks out and comes back in. He says, yep, I just talked to Nick Lidstrom. Nick Lidstrom suggests that we play Frederick Olison and uh, maybe we'll drop Uwe Krupp out of the lineup. And sure enough, uh, that was how practice was set up with the colors of the jerseys. So I went up to Nick Lidstrom and said, Nick, uh, you talked to Scotty today? Uh, nope, I haven't talked to him for a couple days. <laughs> okay, and the rest is history. We went on to win and we won the cup that year. So back after, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, back after following uh, Scotty, um, I, I knew the expectations, but it was an opportunity that I couldn't turn down. Well, and let's set the record straight that you had two 48-win seasons, yeah. 100-plus point seasons. Yeah. Uh, that's good by any standard, yeah. but you didn't win In the Stanley cup. Cups. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So... Um, it, it just didn't happen. In the, there's a certain time uh, where the players, yeah. you know, they, they do burn out too. They, yeah. they, that, that inner drive is sort of gone. And, uh, um, but it, it, was, it was a challenge for sure. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the opportunity um, to work with the organization, to work with all those great players. And uh, for me, it just, you know, it was, uh, I couldn't turn it down. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what, 20 years with the organization yeah. overall as a player yep. and coach. Yep. I mean, yep. you know, I, I mean, that's that's a hell of a chapter <laughs> in, <laughs> Thanks, in, yeah. in, in, in anyone's life yep. and a successful yeah. uh, chapter uh, by any measure. Yeah. So, uh, I'm you. sure you would have liked to have, you know, had that opportunity extend further there. Yeah. But you eventually wound up in Boston for a Boston, year as yeah. head coach? Yeah, Boston a uh, year as a head coach. and uh, Four-year contract. One year, yeah. Um, so it didn't work out, and it, that happens. And then went to Los Angeles as an assistant coach because I played there for three years. And then went to Carolina for, I don't even know, two and a half or three years um, in the NHL. And then the next opportunity came. I uh, coached a little bit in the KHL with the former Red Wing, Glenn Hanlon, who was yeah. the head coach. Fired again. So if you're not fired, you're not a good coach, I guess, or something. <laughs> uh, uh, did the stint one year as a national team coach for Team Ukraine, who both my grandparents uh, came from Ukraine. In the, them, they grew up in, they didn't grow up, but I grew up in Saskatchewan. They had yeah. immigrated here through Ellis Island and then um, got to be a head coach of the Belarusian national team for three and a half years. Which was... Uh, I'm glad I'm not there. <laughs> yes, right now especially. It's yeah. sad. Yeah, it is awful. You know, for, uh, for Ukraine, for yeah. even the Russian people, but also, yeah. you know, in a Belarus being yeah. kind of drawn in or seemingly being yeah. drawn into uh, the conflict or attempts that way. But I've heard some of the stories of the experience uh, with the Belarusian team. You've shared some of that yeah. with me in the past. Is there is there one maybe that – that you can tell that kind of one of the one of the odd uh, situations where there was a young player who had pulled a groin, and he was in the training room, and they were trying to get him ready. The trainers and doctors were trying to get him ready. It's a little different over there than it is here. Get him ready to play. And one of the players came to me, or maybe it was assistant coach. He says, "You got to go in the training room. You won't believe this." So I go in the training room, and on this guy's legs, 
He had a towel draped over him. He had probably, I would guess, 9 to 10, 10 to 11 leeches on his legs. They're sucking blood, trying to, I'm not sure what, stimulate blood flow. I don't know. But uh, that was one of the things that I will never forget, ever. Yeah, so. Um, How difficult was that? I mean, you didn't speak the language, right? Yeah, it, um, some of them spoke English. I had an interpreter. Uh, it, it's funny, um, you, you sort of, they sort of understand, like, I was lucky enough to coach, like, Vladimir Konstantinov, Sergei Fedorov, who they didn't really, um, you had, there was a language barrier, but you had to figure out ways to communicate with a board or with video or on the ice, um, and I, I, I sort of did that, but I had a full-time interpreter. The problem with an interpreter is you make a presentation, and if it's a five-minute presentation, it turns into 10 or 12. And then you lose the players because they, they their attention span is not so so great. But once the game got going, you know um, adjustments. I'd have to call the guy over and then and, and uh, explain or get somebody there. But it, it seemed to work out fine. We had uh, you know Team Belarus had never beat USA and we beat USA my first tournament and uh, so it was a life experience. It was really interesting. Um, a lot of stories, a lot of funny situations that aren't typical of North American hockey or the NHL, but uh, a great life experience. And how many trips across uh, the pond? Uh, uh, in the three and a half years prior to my retirement, I crossed the ocean 32 times just to get to like Amsterdam, Frankfurt, or Paris, and then from there I had another two and a half hour flight. So if I never see the inside of an airplane again, I'll be happy. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So. As we wrap things up, and again, we could talk all day, and yep. I'm so appreciative of your time doing this, telling some of these great stories that maybe some are hearing for the first time, I'm sure and, and, uh, and, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. You know, as you reflect back, though, on, on this hockey life, yep. um, you're, you know, you're certainly grateful for this life that, that oh, this game has given you. It's given me everything I had, um, yeah. and I'll tell you one little quick story from where I came from. Um, in my hometown of Kindersley, Saskatchewan, 4,500 people, small town in the middle of nowhere, there came a point where my mother um, had to make a decision. I, I had general skating in my hockey program for this particular year. I might have been 10 or 12 or can't remember what age I was. It was going to cost $12 for the ice time and for the hockey. And she was balking at paying it because she couldn't afford to pay it. But as it turned out, it was $12 well spent because, um, you know, I have what we have and uh, got to see the world and have fabulous family and yeah. uh, it was something special. And in hockey, it's not so much about the games, it's about the people you meet. Uh, players, like I just got back from a reunion in Long Island, some of the old players that I played with and you don't talk much about the hockey games, you talk about the relationships and yeah. uh, some of the stories with the coaches are about like, you know Al Arbor and somebody breaking an egg over his head and that story and so it's it's um, a lot of good people in hockey yeah. a lot of really good people what a, what a life and you're one of those good people well thank you you are too Dave and I don't know what kind of hockey player you were but you're still a good person <laughs> <laughs> I was not a hockey player okay. let's leave it at that okay thanks okay. for this today okay good luck with it too by thank the way. you Dave Lewis the former Red Wing player assistant coach head coach uh, with a lifetime of hockey experiences, we thank him for joining us on this inaugural podcast. We'll see you next time.